The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and find your way back to Romans chapter 2. We are making our way ever so slowly through the book of Romans with really no hurry except to absorb and enjoy the amazing truth that this book unpacks and reveals about the gospel. Romans is a remarkable book. It's uh, uh, an uncanny book in some sense. It's a, it, it, we, we've used the illustration, you can see it on the, the slide up top, of an of automatic watch. It's so many moving parts and gears and springs and a mainspring that move all together for one function, and that's to tell time. The book of Romans is like that. When you open up the book of Romans, you see all the intricate parts of the gospel that come together in one simple message, which is how to be saved and how to live in Christ. Just as that watch has so many parts, but at the end of the day, just tells you what time it is. Well, we found our way in our study of Romans to chapter 2, which is a part of a, a very intricate, though not complicated, argument that Paul is making about how condemned the world is so he could show how wonderfully glorious the gospel is against that black backdrop. And as I said over and over, if you have a weak constitution, if you are a person who doesn't like to be called names that are accurate about you, Romans is probably not the book for you. Uh, He's very honest about us, but in also showing us the reality of our heart, also shows us the glorious gospel that God would save sinners. His love is not like ours. He demonstrates his love differently than ours, where we would love a righteous and a good man. God demonstrates his love in that he died and loved sinners. We come now to finish up verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 2. We began this a few weeks ago and uh, got... Four, uh, three of the four points done and had to take a break. And now we're going to go back and review and jump into verse 5, which is where this, this passage really climaxes. Let me read that to refresh your mind. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you, do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This passage describes the reality of when guilty sinners pass shameful judgment. The Bible is so full of Amazing illustrations, insightful word pictures that frame the way we think. It's amazing if you'll 
look at any uh, concordance or encyclopedia of English phrases, how many of those phrases are rooted in the Bible, particularly in the King James Version of the Bible. One of the most familiar comes to us from the lips of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone who's not acquainted with this hyperbolic picture. Let me just read it for you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? I'm sure we've all heard that. I'm sure we've all used that. I suspect that all of us who are believers in the gospel have called upon that illustration and passage, even to our defense when we've been wrongly or felt wrongly accused, but wrongly accused by someone who we think is even more wrong than us. And the response and the knee jerk is, don't deal with the speck in my eye, look at the log in your own, correct? Now the passage before us in Romans chapter 2, as well as the words of Jesus that we just read with the log and the speck, turn our attention to the subject of judging others. Let's be honest for a minute. This is not talking about those judgmental people. This is talking about you, me. This is talking about the attitude of being judgmental, and all of us fall into that attitude from time and again. We can be judgmental about politicians, can't we? We can rail on policies in our country, in our our communities. We can be judgmental about celebrities. It's easy to judge coaches and teachers around the dinner table. Oh, and friends and family members, they don't escape the gavel either, do they? We can find ourselves so incurably judgmental about others. Being judgmental, though, is really assuming the position that we are right and another is wrong. Pretty simple, isn't it? I'm right, you're wrong, I judge. Now listen, there's a big difference between making a right judgment and being judgmental. We need to make right judgments. God calls us to to make judgments without being judgmental. If you're a parent and your son or daughter does something wrong, that's not the time to say, you know, I'm not going to be judgmental. You just let your room be as messy as you want. You're making a right assessment and making corrections. That's different than being judgmental. We can say it this way. Evaluation is not the same as denunciation. It's okay to evaluate one another. Please evaluate my life. Evaluate my family. Evaluate one another. Let's make sure that we're seeing things and making corrections so that we're more like Christ as we move along together. But when we assume the position that we are ultimately right and the person across the desk from us or the object of our conversation is totally wrong, now we've crossed a line. The source of being judgmental It's very simply a heart that is self, what's the word? Righteous. Self-righteousness is the great infection of humanity, and it's something that a Christian doesn't shed when we give our lives to Christ. We struggle with being self-righteous as well. Self-righteousness overestimates one's own goodness and underestimates one's own sinfulness. Two different things, but they work like two sides of a coin. We overestimate how bad people are in terms of the reference to ourself. Oh, sure, they're wicked sinners who need saving by the grace of God, but we, we tend to think we are in a good position, others are in a less position, and now we can make evaluations from our righteous standing. 
So easy to exaggerate the faults of others while minimizing our own, is it not? In fact, we have pretty good eyesight when it comes to observing specks in other people's eyes, and we look right around that log that's in our own. I think the words of the Lord's half-brother James are so penetrating here about being judgmental. They should really haunt us. James 2.13 says, For judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. Wow. Combine that back with what Jesus said. The measure and the standard by which you judge others, God will say, you like that standard? You comfortable with that standard? That's what I'm going to apply to you as well. Being judgmental is a simple announcement to the world that you are right, righteous and self-righteous. And self-righteousness is to hope and believe that you are beyond blame, beyond reproof, exempt from criticism, and exempt ultimately from judgment. Being judgmental and being self-righteous is ultimately saying that God has two thrones from which he judges, his and yours. We accompany him in looking at the world and the people around us and helping them become more like God and us. Now that brings us to Romans chapter 2. Paul's just spoken about the condemnation of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1. They are without excuse. They have turned their back on God. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They've worshipped idols and creatures rather than the creator in true and spirit and heartfelt worship. They've exchanged God's glory for the glory of the world. Not only that, it climaxes in the last few uh, uh, verses of the chapter by saying, giving us a catalog of sinful categories that people choose to express their depravity, ultimately ending in the giving hearty approval in the last verse to those who practice them. People love sin, Gentiles, the world loves sin and loves to exonerate and, and excuse other people's sin because it then gives us more latitude to sin in the ways in the depth that we want. So the second chapter, Paul turns from looking at the, the Gentiles in the world and he he, he cranks the screws a little tighter on those Jews who may be sitting with Paul and saying, yeah, those worldly pagans, how awful they are, how, how grandiose is going to be the judgment of God, how worth the judgment of God are these wicked sinners. And Paul says, really? Is that so? So he turns to talk to a group of people who are Jewish now. We find out down in verse six, 17 that he's addressing Jews. He doesn't reveal his hand too quickly, though. He doesn't tell them he's talking to Jews. He makes it uh, a general principle and then basically says, this is who you are as Jews who think that because they've been given the promise and the covenant and, and the inheritance and the heritage of Abraham, they are in some way more special than Gentiles and more privileged He approaches this violent prejudice in a general way first and then applies it to the Jew afterwards. It's a genius way to, to uh, uh, approach logic. You know, here's, here's something that's wrong. What do you think about that? Oh, that's wrong. By the way, that's you, what Paul does. Now, there's an important theological pillar reaffirmed here that God's judgment is absolutely impartial. Jew, Gentile, tall, short, 
Red, yellow, black, white, it doesn't matter. God's judgment is impartial. No matter how favored the Jews had been for receiving the covenant from God to Abraham, they cannot be shielded from God's wrath. Here's a simple argument. Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, God's wrath is revealed against those who suppress the truth of God. Therefore, they are without excuse when they judge others in chapter 2, verse 1. And the reason is really interesting, and it's this. These Jews, these self-righteous, it's not just the Jews that he's addressing. It's anyone who would be self-righteous. Tend to practice in mind or expression the same sins for which they judge others. Now, as I said, we began this study a few weeks ago, but we're going to complete it today in looking uh, at, the, at the trajectory of this argument. And as we unpack this passage, we're going to find four expectations from passing judgment. This is specifically talking to the Jews, but the greater principle applies to anyone who finds himself in a self-righteous judgmental state, and that is all of us. Four expectations from passing judgment. Let's look at the first three very briefly, and then we'll pick up where we left off in the fourth. The first expectation from passing judgment is this in verse one. It's guilt from passing judgment. When you pass judgment, you should expect guilt. Verse one, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for, and that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? Why do you condemn yourself? Because you judge, uh, for you who judge practice the same things. This is incredible hypocrisy. Unbelievable hypocrisy. Paul's addressing this group of people who suppose themselves to be morally superior to another group. Yes, that was Jews and Gentiles here, but that can track with us as well, where we feel morally superior than another political party, morally superior than another group of people who live in another part of the world or city or state, morally superior to people in our family, morally superior to people who aren't Christian. You say, wow, aren't we supposed to be morally superior? We're supposed to be trying to be righteous like God, but we are as in need of God's grace as any human ever born anywhere. God didn't look at us and say, what a special, moral, upstanding young man, young woman. I'm going to save them. They're so good. Just the opposite. We find out again in verse 17 that this is a group of Jews. And Paul's point here is you're without excuse. You have no excuse when you say how bad things are that you do. And we said last time that it's really easy to give hearty approval to things that we condemn. Coming out of chapter 1, verse 32. Oh, we would never do those things that we watch on the big screen, but we would sure condemn them and yet be quite happy being entertained by them. Be careful with the self-righteous position. Paul goes on in the next verse and gives another expectation from passing judgment, and that's judgment. You should expect judgment for passing judgment. Verse 2, we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Don't think that you have an exemption from God's judgment if you do the things that you condemn. He begins assessing the judgmental nature of one person toward another. It's an appeal to conscience and intuition saying, don't you get it? You are doing the same thing, thinking the same thing, being entertained by the same thing, approving the same thing that you're condemning. 
not the first nor the last time Paul's going to point to our conscience and say, we know better, therefore without excuse. He did so in chapter 1, verse 19. They understood. Verse 20, they understood. Verse 21, verse 28. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, it talks about conscience. He's saying, you ought to know better. Judgment comes for those who pass judgment. A third expectation from passing judgment is in verses 3 and 4. We looked at this last time as well. Deception in passing judgment. If you're a judgmental person, expect to be deceived by your own passing of judgment. But do you suppose, he gives a little uh, power-packed argument in these two verses. Do you suppose this, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? What a silly argument. I know it's wrong, I think it's wrong, I say it's wrong, but I think it and do it. But even though I know it's wrong, that makes me exempt. Really? No way. Then he goes on, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Are you presuming on the gospel? We'll get to this more in Romans 6. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? God's been so kind, so tolerant. And so patient. And then he climaxes that argument in that last phrase, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Aren't you glad that God is a father to us in a much different way than our fathers were to us and their fathers were to them and all the way back to Adam? What leads someone to repentance? Kindness. We've said it over and over. You cannot bad attitude someone into a good attitude. You're going to be joyful right now. Okay, Dad, can't wait. Let's sing praises right now together. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's the principle of God that applies to us in our family, in our parenting, with one another, in moving one another. It's not judgmentalism that moves you to repentance. It's kindness. You can confront and correct if you're kind. Paul says, go in a spirit of gentleness. Do you understand what God could do to us today based on how we think and what we do? He could land on our beach and it would be over. Just think of the attitudes we've had even this morning so far. Any of which, the sinful attitudes, would be worthy of hell and eternal destruction. I've told you over and over how I love that Old Testament word, for God's patience, which means it says God's long-nosed, which means his nose never scrunches up in anger. He's patient and tolerant. If you get this, if you understand this, you'll feel your pulse and say, I'm amazed that I'm alive. Look back at your life. Look back at your month. Look back at your week. Look at yesterday. And God's grace has covered his kindness should lead us then to repentance. We've covered all that. That's review. Now we come to the fourth expectation for passing judgment. And this is the most profound and the most serious. Justice is an expectation. Justice because of passing judgment. Verse 5. But... 
Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The word because in this verse is significant. It confirms that there is a cause and effect relationship between sin and judgment. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. This was the key problem of the Jews. The kindness and patience of God and the treasure of his grace were intended and designed by God to lead them to repentance and to call other people to enjoy that same repentance and favor from God. Yet, their stubbornness, look at the text, and unrepentant hearts kept them from repenting and from turning. Their disobedience shows that they have not received what Deuteronomy calls the circumcision of the heart. Oh, externally they were circumcised. Externally they looked good. Externally they could brag about being uh, daughters and sons of the covenant and, and heirs of Abraham. But internally... There was no change. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, so that you may live. The point is that salvation, Old Testament and New Testament, leads us to an internal, deep, and abiding change in love for God. It doesn't just rearrange our behaviors. Listen. Mormons act nice. Jehovah's Witnesses are nice people. The goal of the gospel is not to make us nice on the outside because those people have no changed hearts because they don't have the gospel. The gospel is supposed to change us from the inside out. It deals with our heart. Paul says here, it's your stubbornness, your your unrepentant heart, your lack of repentance that's at stake. It's very interesting that he talks about internal issues here. We can see stubbornness on the outside, but we don't always know that it's going on on the inside. And then he talks about an unrepentant heart. He's talking about what's going on behind your eyelids. He's talking about what's going on down deep that you may or may not be expressing, but it's present. It's resident in the soul. In this verse, I want you to notice that the word wrath is used twice, emphasized, accented. Wrath will be meted out on the great day of wrath, which comes at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look at the the difference here. He's already talking about being judgmental and being self-righteous. Now he purposefully says that God's judgment, it is righteous. There are no excuses. No one will show up before God with a lawyer who can, who can somehow give an appeal for the sentence. It is singular, it is instantaneous, it is righteous, and it's eternal. Invaluable lesson and principle for us here. What are we trusting in for our protection in the great day of judgment? What are you trusting in? Being good, trying harder, being better? being better than someone else, hoping that God grades on a curve. God's judgment will be righteous. This passage is is a terrifying passage. 
The sentence of God, the great judge, will not rest on anything external or your reputation with others. It will be based on who you are in the heart in secret. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven have fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, John says, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead and which, were in, which was in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. Every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment Paul's talking about here. The final state of the wicked is described under figures of eternal fire in Matthew 25, 41. The pit of the abyss in Revelation 9, 2, and 11. Outer darkness in Matthew 8, 12. Torment in Revelation 14, 10, and 11. Eternal punishment in Matthew 25, 46. The wrath of God, Romans 2, 5 here in our text. The second death, Revelation 21, 8. Eternal destruction from the face of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. And the perpetual state of living in eternal sin in Mark 3, 29. When is the last time when is the last time you really took some time to stop and think about the reality of hell and judgment and God's wrath? Hell is described as a place of fiery torment where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched, Mark 9. An everlasting fire in Matthew 18, 8 a fire itself in Matthew 5.22, an unquenchable fire in Luke 3.17, a flame in Luke 16.24, eternal fire in Jude 7, fire and brimstone in Revelation 14.10, and a furnace of fire in Matthew 13.42. Pain. Torment. Without relief. In Dante's Inferno... He says in a fictional way, but in a very truthful way, there's an inscription over the gate of hell that reads, all hope abandon ye who enter here. William Nichols said, the heat of the fire will everlastingly torment them. And the stench of the brimstone will offend their senses while the blackness of darkness will constantly horrify them. He goes on to say, For the damned who inhabit that place of eternal wrath, hell is truth learned too late. That quote has haunted me over the years. Hell is truth learned too late. No one will want to go there when they see 
the reality of it. No one will want to stay there. Christopher Love, another Puritan. Hell is a place of torment ordained by God for devils and reprobate sinners, wherein his justice, by his justice, he confines them to everlasting punishment, tormenting them in body and soul, being deprived of God's favor, objects of his wrath, under which they must lie unto all eternity. John Chrysostom, early church father, the pains of hell are not the greatest part of hell. The loss of heaven is the greatest part of hell. John Calvin, there can be no doubt but that by such expression, descriptions of hell, the Holy Spirit intended to confound our faculties with horror. Yes, God intended to frighten us with hell. Hell seems to have almost disappeared from evangelical pulpits. And without the threat of hell, heaven's just another option. Two serious errors. I think the pulpits in our day can neglect it. It's impossible to preach about to preach through the scriptures faithfully without coming to hell. I, I didn't put Romans 2:5 in the Bible. It was the next verse. It's impossible to faithfully explain the gospel without the horrific, catastrophic consequence of rejecting Christ. Listen, neglect the preaching of the reality of hell and you'll, you'll skip large sections of our Lord's own teaching, his own words in the gospels. Skip preaching about hell and you'll skip the accent of the epistles to flee from the coming judgment. Stop preaching on hell and you need to not preach the book of Revelation. Faithful expository preaching will ensure and demand that we love people enough to warn them to flee from the wrath that's coming. I also think there are pulpits that not only neglect it, but minimize it by mentioning it without describing it as a literal place of eternal torment. Think of that. A literal place of eternal torment. No second chance, no court of appeal. Minimizing the nature of hell. Minimize the reality of hell and you'll find people believing that hell is remedial, a kind of purgatory where there's a second chance provided after you die. Minimize hell and you'll have people thinking hell is a place to be since so many of their deceased friends are ahead of them there. Minimize the reality of hell and you'll make people think that there's plenty of time to get right with God and turn from their ways and believe in the gospel someday or tomorrow. As Spurgeon said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's. Hell is full of, hell is full of everything we dread. Physical pain loneliness, darkness, which constantly accentuates fear, regret, regret, regret. What bothers me most about hell is the constant reality that there is no other chance. When the rich man 
in Luke 16 is talking about his plight. He doesn't ask for another chance. He knows he can have no other chance. You know what he says? Please, go tell my family to not come here. The passage you should all be familiar with, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. Solomon says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Because people aren't judged immediately, they think God's lenient and they can sin all they want. Solomon says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his life like a shadow because he does not fear God. The doctrine of hell is the most unpopular doctrine in the Bible and the most ignored, minimized, and neglected. Most disbelieve it if it exists. And those of us who do take it seriously have some unbiblical ideas about it. There's an expectation that, oh, others may end up there, but not me. And if you know Christ and the grace of God, you won't. But if you don't, I pray that you shake and shudder in your bed tonight at the thought that Christ could take your life or return in judgment and you've rejected his sweet, free gift of salvation. I've shared this couple of sentences from Spurgeon with you in the past. I cannot improve on his words. I read them to you again. Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners are to be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Look at this text. You're storing up, you're reserving, you're making it worse. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is coming. You know, we have the four spiritual laws and some people say the the first spiritual law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the first spiritual law. The first spiritual law is God's returning and he's mad. Rightfully and righteously and furiously mad at you for rejecting his son and from keeping back your affections from him and exchanging them for things in this world. Now, God has a person who can remedy that in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I just, this verse, this verse just makes me tremble. Storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And then it says, let me dial in on this, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He will come in one of a few ways. The rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ, him coming to take his bride away could happen today and then the judgment would come. After that, 
through a series of seven years, either through death, in which it will be a very difficult time to believe the gospel, very high cost for believing the gospel. At the end of that time, there'll be another time when he comes in judgment. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, after a thousand years, he'll come again in judgment. Where we are right now, we're looking for the return of the Lord Jesus. He promised to come back, and I believe he will. He will meet us in the air, Thessalonians says. But I also think of those who have heard from believers the gospel who will one day run looking for them and not find them. When I was in high school, some of you are old enough to remember this, we had a lot of these rapture movies. You guys ever see those? Thief in the Night. and those. It just scared me to death. And what was so scary about those was the, the thought that I might not be saved in my family who was and my friends who were. I would wake up one day and they would be all gone to heaven and I would be here all alone. It's not just a movie. It's a real promise. Where are you on the scheme and the scale of righteousness? Do you see yourself as worthy of this and grateful that God's grace has come and visited you in the gospel? Or are you in these first five verses having all sorts of judgments against all sorts of people in the world, and yet you doing, thinking, and approving in conscience the same things. David had sinned horribly, horrifically, had an adulterous affair, organized a murder to cover his tracks, pulled others into it to create a cover-up and a conspiracy, In 2 Samuel, verse 12, we find this. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to David and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat bread and drink of his cup and lie at his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. It was his pet. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take of his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's little ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him as the traveler. After Nathan had told the story to David, the text says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave your master's house and your master's wives and your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more of these things. Yet, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Why have you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised 
me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up, raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin and you shall not die. David was called a man after God's own heart and yet David was not exempt from being judgmental. But did you see what happened in the end of that, that story? When David openly confessed, when David came and sought favor and grace, when David was serious, sober-minded, and confessing his sin, God met him with grace. Back to Romans 2.3. Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? David didn't think that. After he was confronted. David did think that before Nathan came though. Thought he could make it free and clear. No one would know. Totally covered. A couple of questions for you. You're judgmental. I'm judgmental too. This is all of us. What are you doing about that? What are you doing about that? Are you looking down on others or giving them the grace and favor of God and the gospel that will redeem them? Uh, Let me just, can I just vent for 30 seconds? If I have another conversation with another friend of mine, I just had one, uh, I was out out of state this week for a couple days, I had another conversation. If I have another conversation with a friend who is more concerned about the affairs of the politics of our nation than he is his neighbors going to hell, I'm going to be really frustrated. I get it. It's bad. Hey, can I give you a hint? It's going to get worse. Evil men will proceed what? From bad to worse. God does not have an American flag by his throne. It's not the kingdom. I don't like things that are happening in our country. I can vote and do my best, but the issue is, we should sing the song, Rescue Perishing. Secondly, is it possible that you don't have the protection and the only protection that you need from the the sure and certain coming revelation of God in his righteous judgment. And that hell for you is not a thought, it's an expectation. I want to beg you, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. Hell is real. Hell is forever. Run, run, run. Don't walk to the cross Believe the gospel. You can't do enough to get yourself out of hell. 
You can't try hard enough to be good enough to be exempt from that. Only Jesus' righteousness can protect you from the righteous judgment of God. I'm still amazed that Jesus, God looks at me, God looks at us believers in the judgment, and our righteousness is Christ's. We are perfect in his sight. Is that not amazing? Now, your first thought is, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the right response because we can't earn that. He, Romans will get there in chapter 3 and verse 4, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He imputes, he credits, he puts on our account Christ's righteousness and takes our sin and puts it on Christ and crucifies him on a cross. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Are we more critical of others' sin than our own, more aware of others' sin than our own, more vocal about sin and others that also resides in us? Or do we rejoice that God has forgiven a sinner like me? I love the phrase. We sing it so often, but it's easy to lose the power. That saved, say it with me, a wretch like who? Like who? Like me. Do you get that? Do you understand that God has saved you not from just hell, not from just his wrath, not from just Satan? He saved you from yourself? Remarkable. So then, we should walk and live like it, shouldn't we? Let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled by this text, tackled by the reality consumed. Lord, those of us who know you are consumed when we think of this with a wow moment that you would save us from hell by killing your son in our place. Convict our self-righteousness, Father, Reveal to us our judgmental spirit. Give us the ability to correct godly and properly those who we love while first looking at the log in our own eyes. And we pray that those who are afraid that they may slip into eternity in a Christless hell will find Forgiveness today in the gospel. We'll come to the prayer room. We'll seek counsel. We'll not postpone another moment the dealings with their soul. As we sing now, Lord, give us rejoicing in this glorious truth and amazement at your amazing love. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.